Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 19 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance. I'm also a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link in the top right-hand corner that you can uh, stream us. Um, obviously, 1230 a.m. on the dial if you're driving around the CSRA or wherever you're listening to us, right? Yeah, and my favorite way is the smartphone, mm-hmm. John. You can download the TuneIn radio app and, um, you know, put on your headphones, and you can listen to us anywhere in the world. Yes. I like we'll that. make it convenient. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great way to listen. All right. Well, we got a great show lineup for the day. Um, you know, John, we're going to start off with cracking the genetic code for the wealthy. It's the seven traits of the rich that they have in common. You sound like a money doctor. Genetic code. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's it. We like to dig in and, you know, mm-hmm. study the actual uh, uh, inside, what makes them tick, yeah. right? And that's what we're going to do for the rich here. And, you know, it, it's it's a great article here out of CNN Money because it really kind of boils down what are the things that, that advisors have seen from their wealthy clients, their rich clients, really. These are like people with five million bucks or more. Yeah that, um, you know, they have in common. And there's some takeaways here that, that can help all yes, of us. Great so, lessons there. Yeah. We're going to follow up with an article out of Financial Planning, um, kind of a technical article, but it's the, the title of it is Seeking Large Returns from Very Small Stocks. And, Steve, we talk about this periodically. Um, you know, small stocks over time historically have, have done pretty well. And yeah. so we're going to dive into that and um, kind of look at, at some reasons why they do that and some other data associated with it. And then we're going to end up with a um, segment um, from Dave Ramsey. He wrote an article um, that says uh, it's the seven signs kids sports may have taken over your life and your budget. So Yeah, that's a good one. I really, really like, like that article. Yeah, we see a lot of people with young kids, and it's amazing the sports and the time and the effort um, that families put into, you know, travel baseball, travel, you know, It can soccer. swallow you. It really is, and it's very expensive. So we'll we'll go through Mr. Ramsey's perspective on that. It's pretty good. Yeah, that's a good one. Great show lined up here. But we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this came from the uh, Dow Jones um, is the source, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average turns 118 years old um, recently and you know there are only 12 stocks um, initially that were in the index and that was back in 1896 and um, you know the the Dow Jones industrial average is a popular indicator today it has about 30 stocks but I have a quiz for you oh, what's that you know, there's gonna be a quiz what yeah. one stock is still in the Dow Jones today? Well, I was going to ask started. you. Yeah, that wasn't in the financial fact, and that's the most interesting part of it. Do you have an answer? I, I don't. How about you, Gordon? I've got to introduce Gordon. Our new yeah. advisor is here with us Absolutely. this morning as well. Um, I'm not even quite sure which stocks were uh, there originally. 
118 years ago. That's a long uh, time. Which ones yeah, might have been amazing. included? I know some of them. A bunch of them were steel companies well, yeah. and stuff. That's we have true. our That's intern, true. Matthew Travis, here. Matthew, do you have a guess? Um, I'm not quite sure. Is it AT&T? No. No, no, no. Wait, is it GE? General Electric, that's it. Are you serious? General Electric? GE has been no in there kidding. for 118 years. And they haven't changed their name or nothing. What? They haven't wow. changed their name or nothing. That's, that's right. And, and, Gordon, you go back and you mentioned um, some of the uh, the original 12. Listen to some of these names. American Cotton Oil was one of the original firms. Oh, that was American Sugar. Um, Chicago Gas. American Tobacco. Distilling and Cattle Feeding Company. Huh. Kind of hey, a sign of the times, yeah, right? Yeah, and oh, here's absolutely. a good takeaway from that, too. You know, people think stocks are fantastic. I own Coca-Cola, and I can own it forever. Are any of those companies still around? Every single one of these, except for GE, has been bought out, sold, or gone bankrupt. Yeah, a bunch so of them have gone bankrupt. Some of so them are not there anymore. Big, great companies don't last forever, you know, yeah. a lot of times. Used to be one called United States Rubber, um, National Lead. I mean, so it's a good point. I mean, you know, stocks do come and go, and uh, it can be can be a risky way to invest. Exactly. So, good exactly. answer, intern Matthew. Yeah, that's Thank a good you. one. That's a good one. General Electric, what would that yeah, one. that's amazing. They've done a great job. All right. That's a great financial fact of the week. And that leads us up here to our first topic. And um, that is the seven traits that the rich have in common. Cracking the genetic code of the wealthy is the way I like to title it. Um, you know, it's this is a uh, article out of CNN Money, um, very recent. And, um, you know, it talks about, you know, amassing wealth without a trust fund is no easy feat. But, there isn't, and there isn't a magic recipe for making millions, but it certainly helps to have the right ingredients. And, and there are some right ingredients that the wealthy tend to have in mm-hmm. common. And uh, so, John, you know, as financial planners, I mean, we have the opportunity to meet and work with a lot of wealthy people. And some of those people, I think, certainly uh, you would define as rich. Um, some of those are. Uh, have some of these common traits that that they're talking about here, and I think it's it's safe to say, you know, they were all blessed with some great opportunities to capitalize on their talents and skills, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it helps if you if you get off to a great start. Um, and there are hordes, though, of amazingly talented individuals in the world who will never be rich because they just don't get those opportunities, and they might have these traits. But then there are a lot of them that 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 don't have all the character traits necessary to turn those opportunities into lasting wealth. So that's what we're going to talk about here today is what are those character traits that can turn a series of opportunities into lasting wealth? Yeah, that's, that's a great, um, great opening there. And Steve, you know, most people um, believe the majority of the rich people have inherited their wealth. And you know, that's, that's really not true. I mean, there are a lot of people, um, wealthy people that did have a great start and they got some inheritance or maybe gifts. Uh, But studies have shown that 80% of wealth doesn't make it to the third generation. So, you know, having wealthy parents certainly doesn't mean that you will get more than than one good bite at the apple. A lot of times, um, you know, the kids or the grandkids will spend it all and it's gone. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, the majority of people who inherit a half million dollars, say, for example, you know, they're going to deploy that money to no lasting gain in a matter of a few years. And, and sure, they'll have something to show for it maybe, but, you know, it probably won't create more lasting wealth. I mean, eventually the assets people buy with inherited money like that, they'll depreciate to nothing like most assets do. 
You know, but some people with with the wealth creating characteristics we're going to talk about here, they will take the opportunity to create more wealth, and they may eventually turn that half million dollars, five hundred thousand, into five million dollars. Well, Steve, and that's a good point that you were making about uh, people that inherit half a million dollars or more sometimes. Uh, the same statistic stands true with people that win the lottery. And, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. things like that. Most that. of the time, those people are bankrupt again within three years. That's exactly And I just right. saw a stat recently, the NFL players, there's like 80% of them go bankrupt um, yeah. within a couple of years after retiring because they, they're just spending. They don't save. There's no planning going on. So Yeah, you hear about that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah, I mean, most people might buy a couple of new cars with you know, a half million dollars, a, a beach condo. They might pay off their existing mortgage, and it's gone with possibly nothing lasting to show for it over time. You know, on the other hand, a person with the right characteristics um, that we're going to talk about below might take that half million dollars and turn it into, you know, uh, invest it, like starting a business and Mm -hmm. adding a a lot of sweat equity to that to create more lasting wealth and eventually become rich. So, you know, it it does make a difference. And, of course... If you ask wealthy people or rich people, um, you know, how they got where they are, you hear phrases like hard work, education, smart investing, frugality, um, taking uh, risk, and just plain old luck were some of the main factors that the ultra high net worth used in this article um, to describe themselves when they were surveyed by the Spectrum Group who uh, did this study. Um, and then there's billionaire moguls like Richard Branson and, and Oprah Winfrey who are highly entrepreneurial with great confidence in their, their ventures. Um, but those are just two of the traits the broadly shared by the, the self-made rich as um, this article and seeing the money dug into this a little bit deeper about what makes the rich people different from the 99 percenters out there. Um, they asked several wealth experts what similar traits they noticed or attitudes among uh, their clients and with a net worth of at least $5 million, mm-hmm. which I would certainly call oh, get, yeah. getting up there yeah, you no know, doubt. to rich. Um, so I mean, here are some of the things that surface. We'll just jump right into it. Yeah, number one here on the list is um, is being entrepreneurial. Um, going into business is a common path that we see among the wealthy. And, you know, there are plenty of doctors, lawyers, and corporate executives in the $5 million plus group uh, in the survey. But those who go on to become business owners tend to build an even higher net worth. So being, you know, being an entrepreneur and trying to go into business for yourself has proven to be a great way to build wealth. Yeah, and I think that's part of taking risk, too, you know, is being willing to start a business and, you know, do something totally venture capital with it like that. But they didn't really start their business, right? No, no, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't do it themselves. You're right. They didn't build that business themselves, right? Is that what you're getting at? Yes, yes. Yeah, of course not. No, no, they didn't. I'm sorry, that was a little. All those nights and weekends, a little political jab there. Right, right. Careful, Mr. Travis. Careful (laughs) there. Okay, that was a good one. All right, so entrepreneurial. The second one here on the list here um, that we'll go into a little further after the break, and that is they're always on the clock. You know, I mean, forty hour week work week. That's like a part time schedule for many of the that have built their own businesses. So when we come back from the break, we'll summarize that a little more and go into this further. Um, But if you have a question, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are going to continue our discussion here um, before the break um, about the the traits for that the, the seven traits the rich have in common, cracking the genetic code of the wealthy. And we're here with a couple guests. This morning, um, Gordon Leppard is our new advisor in our office at Richard Young Associates, and uh, so welcome, Gordon. Thank you, Steve. Glad Appreciate to have you here. Glad to be here. Yeah, sure are. Um, yeah, he was here last week as well, and uh, we also have Matthew Travis, John Travis's son. So the 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 young money doctor in learning here is uh, <laughs> in training is in joining us. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you, guys. Yeah, appreciate you being here. This is great. So we start off here talking about the seven traits that the seven that the rich have in common. And John, you know, I mean, it's there are a lot of things that we see with our clients that I think the wealthy and the rich have in common. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the obvious things like you know spending less than you make, you yeah, know, is kind of an obvious one, right? But um, but there are also some kind of genetic things, just things that are ingrained in their personality that I think we all can learn from um, to 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 develop more of those traits in ourselves to help us achieve you know wealth over time and help us build wealth over time. Um, and the first one we talked about was the entrepreneurial yeah. spirit. Um, basically, I mean, it's being willing to to branch out, um, take a risk, start a business. Um, do something, yeah. you know, different. Do, do you guys watch Shark Tank? Yeah, yeah, I love every that show. Friday night. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, that's that's a that's the spirit. You got to be willing to take risk, and you see these people come up there with passion, and they put a lot of money into it. So that that is um, that's a key component. You know, and I don't think that necessarily means swing for the fences too. No, no. You know, where you're just it's betting, the, you're betting the farm. Risk. It's yeah, a calculated risk, right? It's a risk that you know that it can fail, and if it does, fine. Um, you know, just like I have some people in my family who have branched out and tried to do things, um, and, and, and they quit their job to do it. And I was like, you know, I mean, I think that would have been a great thing to do part time mm-hmm. and see how it develops. I mean, you don't have to be like totally all in and, you know, you're either bankrupt or you're rich all kind in. of thing. That's what. Dabo says, right? Yeah, I mean, all I mean, all in, I think, has a good connotation. I like the idea of being committed to something, <laughs> but at the same time, it's it's not. Uh, it it yeah. you know, it doesn't mean you have to bet everything. No, on that's it. Take right. Foolish risk, and from a job standpoint. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Everything so. comes back to football. I mean, yeah. Sorry. With with you, it does. Yeah, it? Those five in a row. That just you just can't get over that, can you? <laughs> You know, streaks are made then, end, John. That's right. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're dating ourselves here. Uh, entrepreneurial, I mean, that that is a great trait. The next one on the list, though, was always on the clock. Um, you know, the 40-hour work week, that's kind of like a part-time schedule for a lot of these people that have built their own businesses. You know, a 60 to 8-hour work week is more the norm for these people um, as they're working, you know, on vacations, according to the certified financial planner here they, they quote in this article. Um, and even when they're not working, you know, I, I do see people that run their own businesses that aren't, even when they aren't working, they're thinking about mm-hmm. their business. They're thinking about their next venture. They're thinking about, 
you know, how they're going to improve things because that's our passion. Yeah, I mean, many small business owners wear many hats, right? Uh, yeah, they're, that's for sure. Sales Amen. and HR and, you know, financial, and they, they have to do a lot of different tasks. So That's right. That's right. So they're always thinking about it. I mean, they're on. It's not a 40-hour job, you know, with set set schedule. So that was number two. And then next here is high energy. Um, many high net worth individuals have a lot of energy. You know, they don't need much sleep and they enjoy uh, generally an upbeat attitude, according to the psychologist here that they quote um, in the article uh, who runs the Los Angeles based uh, psychology of money consultants. You know, they tend to be optimistic. I mean, they're always thinking that it's going to work out, right? They take a positive attitude, the cup's half full. So it's another common trait they see among the uh, the wealthy. And they also tend to be visionaries. You know, um, they, uh, uh, they describe many of their clients here in this article as kind of having the force of nature people. You know, they, they see again and again that they have a really great ability to envision possible futures and amazing ability to focus their efforts and their energy once they kind of see the possibility and see the vision. Yeah, right. That's a good one. The next one here on the list, Steve, is um, extremely confident. And um, this gentleman goes on to say that, you know, a lot of his clients who have made their wealth possess what he calls, you know, an, an expansive, healthy grandiosity, which basically means I can do anything. So they, they don't have fear of failure. They think that they can do anything. And they're also open to creative ways of achieving their goals. Um, we also said that their clients have great confidence in themselves and others in their firm and uh, firmly believe the world will accommodate uh, their business ideas. So, you know, it's the risk taking thing that we talked about having, oh yeah, you know, having some some confidence that you're, what you're putting out there is going to work. Yeah, and I have a client and a friend that lives down in Charleston who's a, a you know, very very successful wealthy person. He didn't start off that way, but you know, he just in, in, embodies that characteristic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is very confident, willing to step out of the box and try anything, and, and has these grandiose visions. And, you know, he, he made it work out. Yeah. I mean, he made it work. And, uh, you know, as a result, he's very, very wealthy today. And, um, you know, that's definitely a, a very strong characteristic. You know, they also, though, in this article, describe some of their wealthiest clients uh, as narcissistic personality <laughs> disorder, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, that is, they think they're special. They require excessive admiration, um, have a high sense of entitlement or lack of empathy for others is the way they put it here. Um, you know, I, of course, that's not necessarily... I, I don't think that's universally true with no. wealthy people. I think you do see, you know, more egomaniacs than normal, maybe among the rich. But I, to me personally, I think that's just sin that, and it has nothing to do with what made them rich, mm-hmm. you know, personally. That's my opinion about that. Next on the list here is discerning. Um, for all their confidence, um, their clients know they're not the smartest people in the room in every given issue. Um, but they know to surround themselves with people who are, which helps them to realize their vision. So among business owners, um, those who do the best are the ones who move past the sole proprietorship and and partner with others to expand their enterprises they're mentioning here. And I think that's very true. People do. Yeah, that's why. You've got to recognize your limitations sure. and that you're not an expert in every area. And, and I think they are very discerning from the folks that I know. And um, the one I'm thinking about down in Charleston, the same way, you know, he – 
he hires people for all kind of things and doesn't try to do it all himself. And then uh, next on the list was modest. You know, despite the, the glamorous Hollywood portrayals of the, the rich life, many multimillionaires live um, more modestly for the most part. Uh, most of their richest clients they describe here have chosen not to bump up their lifestyles in lockstep with their growing wealth. They, yet they still, you know, they'll wear their old plaid shirt, he said, um, you know, or at least the men do. And <laughs> so they'll drive their old car. I mean, whatever yeah. the case may be. They live well beyond their means, I think, is the point here. Below their means. Well below yeah. their means, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's the point here. You know, they don't use, they don't spend anywhere near the amount of money they make. Yeah, it was the book that came out a couple of years ago, The Millionaire Next Door. Yeah, that's kind was, of that same that like 20 mentality. years ago. Yeah. yeah. A couple of years ago. Couple, yeah, a couple, couple 20. Just a couple. A couple decades <laughs> a couple ago. A couple decades ago. But it's still applicable today. So that, that's a good one. The last one here on the list is um, being risk tolerant but not impulsive. And anyone who runs a business is by nature a risk taker. Um, but there are no investing swashbucklers among his clients is what this gentleman's saying. They have some short-term investments but tend to have a longer-term horizon than most investors. And whether they invest in a stock or a building, they stick with it as long as it still makes sense to them for the reasons they initially invested. And But they don't go all in on one bet. Um, they, they spread. They diversify, kind of what we yeah. talk about from an investing standpoint. So That's right. They, they do take risk, but it's not excessive risk. Yeah, and, I mean, there's always the guy who bets it all on something and gets lucky and then gets out, but that's not the, the norm for most people, they say here. I mean, the rich tend to create wealth the old-fashioned way by taking small, measured risk often and then sticking with it over a long-term plan. In fact, they tend to have the ability to stick with a long-term plan better than most people, even when it doesn't appear to be working out at first. You might say they have an unusual dose of perseverance. And I would say that's one of the big keys to, to being successful is having the ability to be able to stick with a plan yeah, long, long term, term yep. you know, and let, let time be on your side. So um, anyway, you know, okay, so you can't change who you are, but there are a few takeaways here that I want to mention. One is that you have to be willing to take some risk to grow your wealth, right? You can't sit in CDs in a bank and think that you're going to really get that much ahead. And also, you have to live well beneath your means, um, and employ your money toward investments that will gain over time, not not depreciating assets like a bigger house. And, yes, you know, without consistent upgrades, that is a depreciating asset, mm-hmm. right? And then, lastly, you have to be discerning and not impulsive with investing your, your wealth prudently. That means being prudently diversified and willing to persevere through the ups and downs over time. So I think those are some great traits yeah. we can all learn from. We cracked the genetic code. There you go. There's the genetic code for the wealthy. We got it right here. All right. Well, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages and Gina News. Stay with us. Back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Barber, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are going to lead off our second half of the show here with the question of the week. Yeah, this question Steve got recently is um, uh, the husband asks, you know, they're working, husband's working. The wife stays at home with the kids, and so the question is, is can they contribute to a Roth IRA for his wife? 
and she doesn't have any income. Um, she does a great amount of work, but it's not paid for it, you know, through through wages. Um, but the answer is yes, you can you can unless, do he's, a, unless he's one of those one percenters. Yeah, if he's making over a certain income level, about one hundred seventy thousand dollars roughly, right? Um, you can contribute to a Roth account for yourself and your wife. Um, under age of fifty, it's fifty five hundred per person. Over the age of fifty, it's sixty five hundred per person. So. We're big believers in Roth accounts. Yeah, um, you know, money that goes in after tax, but you don't pay taxes on it in the future. So, and it's a great tool for retirement because it gives you some options when you're retired, right? I mean, if you have some after-tax money that's totally tax-free over here, and you have your retirement plans, then you got some places to kind of help manage your tax situation. You know, otherwise, you get in retirement and all your money's in a retirement plan. Mm-hmm. It's pre-tax money. Every time you want to take a trip or buy a new car or do anything big. You got to kick yourself into a higher tax bracket, right? So you need an after-tax, a tax-free pot of money over here to help manage your taxes in retirement. And a Roth IRA is a beautiful way to do that. Yeah, it's a it's it's an opportunity that may not be around forever. You, you never know; they could change it. It's only been around since '96. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the life of of uh, retirement accounts, you know, it, it might be running its course, yeah. so you better better jump on it. It's a great opportunity. It yeah. really is. That's a good one. All right, and that leads up to our next topic here, and that is a um, article in our financial planning magazine talking about seeking large returns from very small stocks. You know, this is one of our uh, passions over mm-hmm. the years mm-hmm. is getting small stock returns, John. So I think this is a great topic, and... Yeah, about investing. And obviously, we are going to talk about some investing returns here. This is all history. No one can predict the future. Past performance doesn't guarantee future results. Just kind of talking about some things that that, um, that we see. And also, there's some other organizations out there that see historically um, small stocks have been a, a pretty cool place to invest, right, from a return standpoint. They have. There's some additional volatility to small stocks, but as you put them in a diversified portfolio, it can be a nice addition to it. So, you know, Steve, as, as we talked about, the results produced over the years by small company stocks, are they're really eye-opening. From 1926... Through 2013, the annualized return for stocks in this category has been 12.3% versus 10.1% for large-cap stocks. And that's according to data that was compiled by Ibbotson Associates, and that's a, a Morningstar subsidiary. So, oh, come on, John. I mean, that's only a measly 2.2% per year return for 80-something years. I mean, how significant can that be? <laughs> Uh, a lot. A lot. You're about to tell us, I think, right? Yeah, that's exactly it's right. It's amazing. I mean, it's a, that's the difference between being wealthy and not. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, people look at that and they're thinking, oh, gee, it's only like an extra 2%. I mean, what can that do? Well, you know, hello, if your return's 10%, that's a 20% additional return mm-hmm. on your investment. That's huge in the world of investing. Especially over the course of time. Yeah, it that's is. right. Over time, it just makes a huge difference. I mean, they give an example here. Um you know, in Ibison's 2014 yearbook reports, he shows that a dollar invested in small company stocks would have grown to $26,000 over that period of time, which is 80-something years, while $1 invested in the blue chips, the large U.S. stocks, would have grown to about $4,600. So 26000 versus 4000 And that's with, four, a, or 5, that's with a dollar investment. One dollar. Isn't that amazing? Now, I it's mean, a long time. It is a very long but time. still, I mean, that's that's unbelievable amount of money. I mean, that's like $100,000 growing to, 
I mean, help me out here, John. That's that's uh, two point six million, or is that yeah. twenty six million. <clears throat> yeah. That's a bunch. Yeah, I think it's I think it's twenty six million. I think it is too. Yeah, yeah and, it is. You know, but that that obviously um, you know assumes dividend reinvestment, no taxes, and transaction cost are uh, inferred for the small company stocks. But those are tremendous returns. I mean, that's a big difference. Two point two percent over five times the amount there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a massive amount. So, you know, such a report might lead financial planners to include a small cap fund in clients' portfolios, right? But, you know, a closer look at the Ibison methodology can also be valuable and probably ought to step back and look at that. When people call microcap is actually the original small cap asset class, and that's what Scott Leonard, founding uh, partner of Navigo, is a wealth management firm in California, said. It was the microcap data that got people excited about small cap stocks in the first place. And this all happened before the Russell created the uh, 2000 index, which consists of the, the smallest companies out there. So there's different levels of small, and that's kind of what we're kind of alluding to here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is just one dimension of higher expected return. There's others, too, that we'll talk about in a minute. But, yeah, I mean, the Russell 2000 Index was created in 1984, and Ibison's small cap returns go back to 1926 using the stocks in the bottom one-fifth of the New York Stock Exchange as measured by, by size, by market capitalization. Um, in 2001's, Ibison actually switched to stocks tracked by dimensional fund advisors and now uses the DFA U.S. microcap portfolio to represent small stock returns in overall as the proxy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's the same DFA microcap fund that we use in mm-hmm. our portfolio. I recognize John. that. Yeah, you recognize that? <laughs> and we've been using it since 1996. And, in fact, that is now the proxy for the industry for microcap returns. Yeah, it's amazing. That is really amazing. That yeah. just tells you how pure that fund is. It is. Capturing that asset class. Absolutely. And, you know, for perspective, Steve, you know, advisors think of small cap funds. So we're kind of talking about the small cap world here. But there's different definitions of small cap. Um, you know, the average market cap of a small blend fund in the category is about $2.7 billion. That's what the B. Yeah, that's still pretty big. It, it is. And, and many small cap funds use the Russell 2000 as a benchmark. Um, and there's another uh, uh, fund out there. It's called the iShares Russell 2000. It's an ETF. Um, and it's considerably smaller than that $2.7 billion. It's $1.4 billion, so about half the size. But here, put this in perspective. Wow. Um, the yeah. iShares microcap ETF fund, which tracks the, the Russell microcap index, um, consists of stocks with an average market cap of four hundred and nine million dollars. So yeah, that's starting those are to tiny, tiny, that's starting tiny to shares. get a lot smaller. I mean, you know, being here, being there, pretty soon you're talking about real money, right? Yeah, I right. Mean, those are huge companies, even though they're considered small caps. Yeah, I mean, you got to get down in the in the the four hundred million range, like her talking about. Yeah. I think to really be capturing the the micro cap market, and that's what they're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, such relatively tiny stocks can be volatile, of course. I mean, Ibison's category of small company stocks lost 36.7% in 2008. Of course, so did the S&P 500. But they yeah. are more volatile yeah. than large stocks. There's no doubt about that. Sure. They are more volatile. And um, yet the long-term returns have been very strong. And the bull market, uh, bear market, you know, up and downs over the last uh, you know, 20 or so years, they mentioned here, um, actually 18 years, 
those stocks had an annualized return of 12.5%, virtually identical to their 88-year performance. And our clients have owned those stocks almost that mm-hmm. entire period of time. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, small stocks, there's different definitions. Um, you know, take a look at, at what you're invested in in your portfolio. Uh, we can certainly help you with that. But there's another um, piece here to the puzzle, Steve, that we talk about periodically. And, you know, considering the risk and the historical performance, um, you know, does it make sense to include these microcaps in a client's portfolio? And this one gentleman, Leonard, says, well, yeah, it, it should be a part of an overall diversified approach to uh, asset classes, spread across the world. And, you know, we, we do add uh, microcap stocks in there. We also have small sure. stocks internationally. We, we're we big believers in that. Um, it's got to make sense for your situation. So make sure you, you read the prospectuses and you, you work with your financial advisor to make sure it fits in your portfolio. But we're believers in it. Yeah, we definitely are. And, uh, it, you know, whenever they talk about their, their breakdown here, um, they also uh, focus on some value stocks mm-hmm. in their portfolio. Um, they have they have small caps. They have value stocks, and we do the same thing. We believe in waiting towards small, waiting toward value. And now there's a new dimension of higher return that we talked about before, and in, in other uh, shows, and that is called um, uh, gross profitability. Right. So there's actually three different dimensions of getting higher returns in stocks now. Yep. That's very, very important, very, very exciting, and gives you a lot better chance at, at getting a great return. Yeah, and there's some studies that indicate value stocks have top growth stocks over the long term. And, you know, according to, to the DFA software, is where I got this information from, large value stocks um, over an 80-year period from 1934 to 2013 uh, returned 13.4%. Large growth stocks returned 10.2%. So, about a 3% difference on the value versus growth. So, you know, this whole article is talking about small. We kind of introduced the value piece yeah. of it. But, you know, you got to make sure it's right for your portfolio. Spend some time. Do some research. We'll be more than happy to take a look at your situation if you want a second opinion. Yeah, and you start adding those dimensions together, small value together, the return outperformance is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it even gets bigger. So that's a great Great topic. All right, and that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are starting off our last segment here with a new topic. Um, but we're gonna before we get into that, though, we're gonna do the prescription of the week. Yeah, Steve. You know, we talk about this periodically. Dips in the market, market corrections down ten percent are, are pretty normal. The reasons why are different every single time. So yes, they are. You know, stay focused on on your plan. Um, you have to be in the right portfolio going into something like that. Otherwise, you can get spooked. But um, you know, we look back at history, and a market correction on average happens once a year. That's so right. so when it, when it, when you're going through it, take a chance to maybe do some rebalancing, uh, maybe add a little bit more money and focus on the long term. Don't focus on the day-to-day fluctuations because it can drive you crazy. Yeah, it really can. And, you know, most people forget that the average correction recovers in about 105 days, right? So, um, you know, if you just have the long-term view and some perseverance, 
even if it turns into a bear market, which it can, you know, about mm-hmm. a third of those turn the bear markets, mm-hmm. um, you have to take the long view. You have to be just disciplined, have your strategy, stick to it. And if you remember in our first segment, that was one of the traits yeah. of people wealthy that become people. rich, yes. that become wealthy, right, is they have the ability to stick to it over time. And that's what we have to all develop in our personal lives and dealing with our money and our investments. And we, we also mentioned that, you know, over the last 80 plus years, the markets have returned 10 to 12%, even with those dips. That's so, true. you know, if you're a long-term investor, historically, it's turned out to be a pretty good, pretty good way to build wealth. So over time, no doubt. It's a good one. All right. And that leads up to our last topic here. And that is the seven signs kids sports have taken over your life. And your budget. And your budget, right, by Dave Ramsey. This is a great article. You know, he, he I don't know if he writes his own articles, but he this is well written. I like this. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, before you had kids, you remember this, guys, um, you know, spring weekends were magical, right? You slept in late and enjoyed the afternoon brunch. You strolled through the local farmer's market. Um, yeah, that's what know, happens singing. after kids are out of the house, too. Yeah, that's right. Oh, wow. That's right. We're, we're approaching <laughs> that. And that's how you remember it anyway, a long time ago. and. And, uh, Gordon, you've got a couple years for that, but enjoy these times. They're all good. So um, now spring uh, weekends today with kids are a hurricane of activity. I mean, they start at 8 a.m. with soccer games. They um, they peak at a substandard food fast food joint. They end with some angry parent shouting at the Little League umpire. <laughs> yeah, right. We've all seen that. Oh, absolutely. We? Somebody losing their friggin' mind yeah. at a ball game. Nine-year-old ball it's game. It's like, what do you think this is like the – this is like the the World Series yeah. here. I mean, they're you know these aren't professional athletes. Get, John, Johnny's got to win. Come get on, a life. <laughs> yeah, you, you sports are great in theory, but in practice, they can take over your life. There are great lessons. I know Matthew's gone through uh, youth sports, soccer in Aiken for for many years, and great lessons. But you know, here are seven signs your kids' sports may be overrunning your life as well as your wallet. And the number one on the list here, I love this, is the sales guy at Sports World knows you by name. <laughs> yeah, that is a bad sign when, you know, somebody at Sports Authority starts saying, yep. hey, you know, John, welcome yeah. back. Come on you back. Know? You see three sales representatives, they're all running towards you. That's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. come in the door. Yeah. Right. They're paid off commission. Yeah. Uh, that's not a good sign either. Or, or if they have a parking spot for you, that's another sign maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I got your <laughs> name already customer. Up, you, know. you know, whether it's ballet shoes or baseball bats, every sport has stuff that you have to buy. And you know, the more sports your kids are in, the more stuff you're constantly buying, and quite frankly, you're constantly thrown away because they're being outgrown. And so for the sake of your budget and your sanity, pick one or two sports and then shop used, maybe trade with other parents, or have your kids buy a portion of their own equipment. And, you know, if you can't afford the stuff that doesn't fit in your budget and you're not doing your other priorities, maybe you can't afford the sport. Maybe you need to step back and look at it. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I, and I, the second one here on the list, I swear I've seen this before, and that is you haven't seen your spouse all weekend. Yeah. You know, your spouse goes one direction, you go the other, and I, and I think you're definitely carrying it too far when when you start doing that. Yeah, in order to squeeze in all those games, you and your spouse must divide and conquer. If you're lucky, you'll meet up again at 8 p.m. to sleep through another movie night on the couch together. But before your kids sign up for the next sports uh, that they're dying to play, check out the time commitment. You know, if it's too much, tell your kids that you just can't, um, and explain to them that family time comes before sports. Yeah, I mean, Abby, if I go back to our Abby, you know, whenever she's coming up, I mean, she wanted to do everything coming up, 
every single uh, sport that you can imagine. It was all we could do just to keep her down to one extracurricular activity at a time. We would not let her play a sport and go you know, practice drums or, or take drum yeah, lessons. You're a mean parent. We were. We were mean, man. We said one at a time, that's it. You know, I mean, she still, I mean, had a pretty darn good, Yeah. you know, being able to do all the expensive stuff. But having said that, I mean... Yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, you if, you have, if you have four kids, though, that right. can oh, those can all start overlapping, oh, even absolutely. one at a time is too much. Well, here's number three on the list. Your diet consists of meat, potatoes, and grease. <laughs> right. You know, we, we've all done it. You're so busy shuttling kids from ballet to baseball to tennis that you forgot about food again. And so you end up blowing, you know, the food budget on hamburgers and chicken nuggets instead of a decent meal together. So, you know, it sounds simple, but you must train yourself to pack some lunches and have the kids help. This is... You know, great way that you can have time together and you can also save a whole bunch of money. So, you know, after the game, steal an hour away and, and go have a family picnic in the park versus the McDonald's. You know, there's there's some different options here. Yeah, John. And, you know, that, that hits you on numerous fronts, too, not only in the wallet uh, for the food that you're having to buy, but health-wise, too. I mean, yeah, you know, when you're constantly on the go and you're, no you're eating out every single meal or at least, you know, the majority of your meals over the weekend or throughout the week, uh, it, it really starts to add up uh, in the wallet and in the waistline, too. Yeah, I mean, even those, even the salads you get at fast food places, you know, I mean, you ask for a light dressing and they're like, oh, we got regular ranch and we got you know blue cheese blue cheese i mean everything and you look at the calories and every one of them has like you know 300 calories mm-hmm. a pack or something crazy like that so yeah yeah you just can't eat out i think the picnic idea is an excellent idea yeah, by the way i, I did too that was pretty cool you know and that leads into to the next point about traveling for uh you know travel teams travel teams are very popular these days and um you know parents are always wanting their kids to be the best and you mm-hmm. know play uh with with other players that are really good and so they they enter all these tournaments you know that are spread out uh, throughout the state throughout sometimes a local region and they're constantly constantly on the go and then that money adds up it's not just the the money that they pay sometimes to participate and be a part of the team but then they have to add gas Mm -hmm. they have to add hotel rooms you know this can go sometimes for an entire weekend and you know i've known several of these teams that They'll do this four weekends out of the month. Oh, it's yeah, insane. Right, right. You know, and, it, and it's nonstop. So you add that to the equipment mm-hmm. and everything that you're having to constantly buy and replace. And the food. And um, you know, I, I, I was chatting with a gentleman the other night, and they were telling me about a nine-year-old, uh, a nine-year baseball team in Ohio who had a $40,000-a-year operating budget. <laughs> Good grief. That's Nine base. I, I wish we would have had the $40,000-a-year operating budget yeah, in right. college. Yeah, right, right. You know, so yeah, nine, years old, you know, nine years old. There's, there's a ton of money being poured into uh, the these youth sports. Yeah, travel ball can be a possession, I think. You know, it really doesn't make sense unless your kid is a phenom. Yeah. You know, well, that, there's a balance. Opinion. And even so, they, they physically need a rest. Some of these guys, they play literally – 12 months out of the year. Right, right. Non-stop. Their bodies are not Professionals ready. don't even play 12 months out of the year. Right. Yeah. All right, next on the list here is skipping church or family events to attend games. You know, I mean, your kids are watching, and if you're constantly showing them that sports trumps church or family functions, and they may begin to see themselves and their sport as the center of the universe, 
So when skipping the occasional church service or family cookout becomes a habit, it can set the wrong example for your kids. So be a role model, you know, with your time as well as with your resources, and don't don't let that creep into your family time. Yeah, I like that one. Number six here on the list is stealing from your necessities. So, you know, if you have a sports envelope um, from a budget standpoint, that, that can be a great way to kind of set some limits associated with, um, you know, how much you're spending. But if it starts stealing away from your debt snowball or you're taking money from your food envelope, you know, you got to be honest. Maybe you can't afford that activity. There's a balance here. If you're not, you know, paying your bills, getting out of debt, setting aside emergency funds, those are the most important things associated with it. So that may be a sign that that, uh, the sports are, are, you know, costing too much from a budget standpoint. And then number seven here is you're more excited than, than your kids. And so have you ever stopped to consider your kids may not even like some of the sports um, they're doing maybe they liked them two seasons ago, but they're just playing it to please you. So make sure you have conversations with your kids. You know, I think talking about these kind of issues and at some point, I don't know what age it is, nine, 10, 11, you, you can kind of tell if Johnny is going to excel. And maybe that is something that you want to pour your effort into. But I mean, the percentage of people going on making money in these sports is so minuscule. You've got to put this in perspective. You really do. I mean, you just can't let sports rule your life. You know, it's a great, I mean, it's a great thing to have your kids involved in. And I think they can learn a tremendous amount from sports. I love the lessons, life lessons that people learn going through sports, but uh, got to keep it all in perspective, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call, John and Steve at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Yeah,